Ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chicky Fitzgerald, and we have today with us someone who I think you are really going to enjoy. He is the author of a book called The Right and Wrong Stuff. And you may know him as the former CEO of Walmart.com, so I'm sure he's got some very interesting stories to tell from that. And the subtitle of this book is called How Brilliant Careers Are Made and Unmade. Let me welcome Carter Cast. Hi, good to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Good afternoon. And Carter, why don't you give us a little bit of the thumbnail of you? I mean, the obvious uh, roles that you have played are, are the big ones that people have heard about, but I'm quite certain that you did not go straight out of college into walmart.com. So why don't you fill the gaps for us a little bit? Sure. Uh, I, when I graduated uh, from undergrad, I went into a, a business development. That's um, kind of a training program at PepsiCo. So I spent about a year in restaurants and uh, making tacos and, and making pizza dough and serving pizzas. I was at Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, um, the international division of PepsiCo Food Service. And my first assignment was a marketing assistant marketing manager in Canada. So I worked, all told, 11 years in, in PepsiCo, in uh, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, and then at Frito-Lay, where uh, I had different marketing assignments over these 11 years, from Tostitos to um, a new product development to a field sales job. And then I left to go to into technology. My sister had just joined this crazy tech startup in Seattle that sold books on the internet. <laughs> and this was the mid-90s. And she said, Cart, you would love to be in a tech startup with your kind of get-up-and-go attitude and your impatience. And you ought to take your marketing toolkit into technology. So she was a huge influence on me, leaving a big $50 billion company, a very well-run $50 billion company, PepsiCo, and going into early-stage early companies. So I went to Electronic Arts, and I was uh, in, in charge of product marketing, and we launched The Sims and and some other really good titles. And then I left that to go to a completely raw startup with two fellows, which uh, sold diamonds uh, direct to consumer over the internet, and oh, that wow. became that became Blue Nile, which is which does about five or six hundred million dollars of business a year now, and. Um, that was a very interesting experience. I ran marketing and sales and merchandising. And then I was recruited to join Walmart's startup arm and launched walmart.com. And uh, over seven years, I, en I ended up being the C becoming the CEO there. And then I left to, uh, we, I, I married a woman who was in, from Chicago and I, I left to, uh, I moved to Chicago without a job and I wandered my way into teaching. So I love it, and I spend my time teaching two different entrepreneurship classes and a few leadership classes at Northwestern's Kellogg School. And then the mm. other part of my time, I'm a venture capitalist investing in early-stage software companies. So uh, I have a very different career now than I had when I was you know, in a line position, but it's really, it really suits my personality. So I've kind of gone big mm. company, 
small company and now teacher venture capitalist. Well, what a what a great role uh, you're in now to be able to tap into all of that expertise, both on the teaching side and, and on the VC side. I've spent my entire adult life in travel technology, so Pritzker is very familiar uh, to me from that uh, regard. Do you ever get involved in any of their travel ventures? I haven't personally. I've done more uh, retail, omnichannel retailing, and a, some some uh, marketing tech, but I haven't done anything that we've done that I can think of in travel in the last six years. Yeah, very interesting. Well, you know, it, it's been interesting because my whole career, uh, even though it has been in travel technology, my specialty is multi-channel distribution, which you know oh, you've just yeah. called omnichannel, right? And and we. We look at it slightly differently from from the travel industry, but you know, to come come back around to your book, you know, clearly over all of these years, you have run into a lot of very very talented people, and uh, probably a few annoying ones here and there. So let's talk about why you wrote the book, who you wrote it for, and and really how you went about the process of of putting all of that experience uh, between the cover covers of this book. What you know? What spurred me to write the book was I all day long I counsel millennials, whether it's you know startups that we're investing in, talking to CEOs and the management team, or at Kellogg teaching um, Kellogg students who are usually in their you know, late twenties or early thirties. And right. when when I ask this question when we're having counseling sessions about career, I say, "What about you could hurt you?" In other words, what could imp- you're so talented, you're motivated. What could impede your career progress? I would get these blank looks all the time, and I I, I realize that the the whole that strengths movement is a wonderful thing, right? And what's not to like about you know taking understanding your strengths and putting them to good use? It's sensible, um, but it's been taken so far that you know while it's good to focus on your strengths, a, a, a blind spot that you don't understand can sweep you you know sweep you at the knees and and stop your career in its tracks. And one of the key things I realized is that in the age of the gig economy, uh, in, the, in the 1099 worker, companies aren't helping the situation. They they aren't they're complicit in managers' derailment. They right. aren't uh, they aren't giving the same amount of feedback as when I was at PepsiCo in the 80s. And, you know, there was a development plan for you and you were given, you know, sometimes tough, but, you know, needed feedback. If if short term results are present, um, you know, bad behavior is often overlooked mm-hmm. and, you know, they shy away from having hard development conversations. It's just not. And I have you know a lot of data behind this. It's just not happening as much as it used to. So I felt like this topic of what about you could hurt you needed to be raised because I just wasn't, I I was seeing too many instances of people lacking self-awareness to the areas of vulnerabilities that could hurt their careers. Well, and you know, I think there are a couple of other things that, that contribute to that. One is managing by conference call, which in my own business, you know, I've been starting uh, my latest startup uh, for about the last year, putting together the team and you know getting the technology built and all all of those things that have to happen before you actually become a real company. And you know, I am just so anxious to be back in 
an office where you can actually, you know, have the momentum that comes from being together and brainstorming and conference calls are just a really awful way to manage a company. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult with all these remote offices and people interacting on Slack and texting yes. and IMing and all this. It's so easy for us to forget that that you know, businesses. It's it's inter, it's interpersonal. It's not a it's a team sport. And uh, the best way to get things done are, is is working with people and looking at them and talking to them and making decisions with them. Exactly, exactly. So let's let's start though with your introduction because I absolutely love this. My blind spot and its trap door. I'm so glad to hear there is a trap door out of the blind spot. By the way. <laughs> Well, I wrote this first chapter to to raise my hand and and say uh, I'm guilty. You know, I'm a card carrying member of the derailment society. <laughs> I have I have been um, had my ears boxed and gotten into trouble and had my career flatline because I didn't understand one of my own interpersonal vulnerabilities. And so I was called into my boss's office when I was a senior manager at Frito Lay senior marketing manager, and I was told I was unpromotable because I didn't take his direction, uh, wasn't a good team player, um, was uh, was you know, obstinate, recalcitrant, all these words that I had to look up in a dictionary when I got home. And and uh, he kicked me off his team and said, and I said, are you firing me? And he said, no, but good luck finding somebody who wants to work with you. And, oh um, yeah, it was terrible. I ended up finding this guy from Canada who didn't know my reputation. So, um, he, he had just moved from Canada. So I got him, I got on his team and, uh, ended up, um, because he was a good person and cared a lot. He worked with me on this area of vulnerability that I just did. I did not understand this, this bit of oppositional defiance that I had, especially with micromanaging bosses. Um, you know, I, I was I was hurting myself by being obstinate and my I was a manager for eleven years. My friends were going on to becoming directors and VPs and I was a manager until I finally realized that I've got to treat my boss like a customer, not like you know, not like a you know, n not ignore him. So wow. this incident was super important to me in waking me up and getting, you know, getting this demotion and moved off this important business and onto something that they thought was, you know, kind of off off to the side made me realize that I was just hurting myself by being obstinate. I wasn't hurting my boss. And it began this process of saying to myself, you know, what are these areas of vulnerability that I have where I'm not self-aware and I need help? And how can I get the help? And what can I do about fixing them? And that's why, you know, I, I think probably at the end of the day, I wrote the book because you know you I don't want to see what happened to me happen to other people or if it does happen to them they're going to have a list of possible corrective actions they can take. Yes. Well, and it, it's really interesting to hear you say this because, you know, while you were on your journey with, with PepsiCo and all of those businesses, I was at American Airlines Saber. So we probably, you know, crossed paths in Dallas at some point. We probably did. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was very much that same time frame where, you know, you had management by objective, you know, so you had your MBOs and you had, you had the, the sit down with the boss and see, 
I didn't learn until much, much later that the reason I didn't do well in that environment was because I was an entrepreneur. I was born to be an entrepreneur and that I didn't do well in environments um, where things had always been done a certain way. And, you know, I came in, you know, bucking the system. So uh, I'm pretty sure I know what my major blind spot was in, in corporate life. But it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, your particular blind spot with uh, how you dealt with your boss, because I realize now that, you know, I've got some of the same issues of how people deal with me and I'm not very patient at dealing with it. And I don't want to be the boss that has to call someone in. I really do want to be, uh, you know, the nicer version, maybe the Canadian version, right? (laughs) Yeah. does some coaching. So in order to help those that are listening, let's go through the five archetypes that you you took a look at as you were putting this together. And the first one you call Captain Fantastic. Tell us about this human wrecking ball. Yeah, this is this is the the biggest thing that hurts us is our response to others. This is a person with interpersonal issues. And the the archetypes built around someone who's you know ego unbridled ego, I me mine you know, uh, el- bruising you with his elbows on his quest for the corner office that that guy we all know that guy he's never wrong he doesn't listen you know he lacks empathy um, he's dismissive and he does pretty well because he's self promoting until he misses his plan we all eventually miss our business plan sometime right? right and he doesn't have he doesn't have support because nobody wants to work with him now what's interesting is even though let's say that's not you that you don't have that captain fantastic there's work there's a lot of good work by robert hogan you know the hogan assessment tool mm-hmm. he takes hogan takes a look at at dark side tendencies that we all have as humans that can hurt our effectiveness interpersonally and he and he finds 11 of them and there's this assessment you can take the hogan you can see do i have any of these 11 tendencies maybe it's not going to be captain fantastic the high ego drive guy but the chances are still really high that you'll suffer from one of these other 11 interpersonal issues that will hurt your effectiveness mine i took the hope mine was mischievous <laughs> Mine was being mischievous at work, being unprofessional, and then not listening to my boss, which they call leisurely, which uh, is sort of being dismissive of your boss if he if you don't like what he's saying. Right. So if I would have taken the Hogan when I was 35, you know, I bet I would have – well, I probably would have not gone through some of these career jags that I went through. Mm-hmm. So, that's, so that's the first one. The biggest problem is people that don't listen – and they let their ego get the best of them, and they flame out eventually because they don't have support of others. That's the first one. Right. Right. And then the next one, I I, uh, can see this one in the mirror big time, the solo flyer. Step aside. I've got this. (laughs) Yeah. This is someone who's really smart and capable and good at doing things, and their their penchant is to do it themselves because they're Mm -hmm. good. And so the problem with this archetype is uh, they get a team, they get promoted, and they still love doing because they're good. And this transformation of identity that comes from being an individual contributor to a manager, they have trouble with from me to we, from doing to leading, and from, 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 from playing to being a coach. 
it's a hard transformation to go through, and this person's struggling with it. And as a result, the team is feels unempowered because you're always, you know, this person's always stepping in and trying to fish for them instead of teaching them to fish. Exactly. Well, and I, I am quite certain that at Pritzker, you guys run into this a lot with founders and entrepreneurs. Oh, and, and sure I, again, do. I say what a great point. I, what a I great do look point. look in the mirror at them. Uh huh. And and I think it's also an issue of um, getting sold on well, selling yourself on the speed and, and the value of speed. Because when you do hand things off to others, it does take longer, right? And and that is actually okay. And getting okay with that is what makes an entrepreneur able to better make that transition. And, and again, I speak from, from personal experience on this one because I'm, I'm working on not taking things back, right? Which, you know, as a consultant, I, I had a consulting firm for 20 years. And if I hired somebody to come in and do something and they, they couldn't deliver quickly enough, I did just do it myself because I had a client to answer to at the end of the day, right? You're, you're, so, you're so right. This hurts entrepreneurs. And yes. they they rationalize their behavior in terms of expediency. Absolutely. And, and you and I both know that yes, there are times you have to dive in because uh, Rome's burning. But the more we do that, what's the price long term of motivation in the team and mm-hmm. their their own skill development and experiential knowledge? The you know the, the the development of experiential knowledge they would get from us handing it to them and letting them struggle a little bit with the answers. Right, right. So no, that's I the second one, the solo right. solo flyer. Mm-hmm. The third one is um, probably the second most potent besides Captain Fantastic in terms of it dropping careers. And this is version 1.0. This is the person who's not adaptable. And the biggest way they're not adaptable is to changes in the market and changes in the business because of technology. Right. So the question here is, you know, are you staying curious are you staying abreast of changes in the market that these shifts that are happening so quickly? You know, if I asked you about blockchain and cryptocurrency and what's going on with the FTC around it, would you be able to talk to me about it? Mm-hmm. If I asked you about block, you know, if I asked you about Internet of Things and big data sets and, you know, would you be able to talk about it? So or, you know, when's the last time you've been out touring with a customer or spending time with a supplier, getting mm-hmm. flushing yourself to get out of your office and into the field and stay curious. So the, the, the antidote to this one is stay curious so you don't become a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask, uh, I remember an article, uh, or actually it was a feature, I think it was in Red Book years ago, and it, it was actually about marriage, and it was, can this marriage be saved, right? And then they would they would tell this awful story. And and this one, I look at it, and I wonder, can can that kind of individual be saved? Can can you take somebody who isn't intellectually curious and and make them that way? It's such a good question. I, I think you have to – the, what I would try to do if I had a version 1.0 is I would try to understand what motivates them. If I could uncon, if I could uncover, because it could be that the reason they're not motivated is they're wrong, they're in the wrong context, mm-hmm. they're not in the right place, they're not motivated by their job. So, you know, if you look at David McClellan's research on motives, and I talked to Dan Pink a lot about this too, we're mot- if we understand what people are motivated by, then we can usually feel how to you know, figure out how to be effective with them. So, some people are motivated by achievement. 
So put them in roles where they keep score and where they can see improvement. Some people are motivated by affiliation. So put those people on teams and in task forces working with people. Some people are motivated by power. They want to influence others. You know, they want to drive the boat. Some people are motivated by autonomy, you know, discretion over their time and discretion over their work product. Maybe they should be a solo flyer. Maybe they should be a sales manager who runs a ter- who who manages a territory and is on their own more. And some people are motivated by purpose, you know, by by mission. So making sure that you find a mission that aligns with their values is important. Maybe they love, uh, I don't know, healthcare reform or education reform or you know, clean tech or something. But trying to get it, if someone's got this malaise and they're not curious and they're sort of stuck in a rut, trying to understand what their motives or help them understand what they're motivated Mm -hmm. by, maybe you can help them get in the right role. Right, right. So what about the one trick pony? Tell me about that. The one trick pony is a tricky one, (laughs) no pun intended. The one-trick pony gets good at something, and they go straight up in a vertical line, but then they hit a ceiling because they don't – they're called – they think they're viewed as non-strategic. They're viewed at they, – they don't understand how all the pieces fit together in an organization. They don't understand the value chain of their company. They are um, seen as limited because they only know one thing well, so they've over-specialized. So mm-hmm. – the trick there, I think, is, yes, you want to specialize. You want to be good at something that's your signature move, you know, that is your, that's your career capital, in essence. But know when it's time to sort of step out, not leap out, but step out. Maybe if you're in sales, you do a trade marketing job. Maybe, you know, if you're in supply chain, you do a manufacturing job next. So you start broadening yourself so that you continue to see more and get more and more visibility into how the pieces of the puzzle fit together in your company so you can get more senior positions. Now, what's interesting about this is some people, you know, like my wife, if she's an attorney, her job is to be a one-trick pony. She needs to be the best, understand trust in estates, and that's her job. So there are some cases where the one-trick pony might say, well, I'm a tax attorney. That's, I am a one-trick pony, and that's, I get paid very well to be, you know. But I'm talking about in business, people that top out, off, you know, in this case, often top out because they are considered unpromotable because they're non-strategic. Right. They know one and thing it, and, and one it thing. is counterintuitive uh, to ask, to go in and ask for a, a another job that is at the same level so that you can learn something different because right. that can send a message that you don't want to get ahead. But I think that the smart leader, when they see someone who wants to do that, should be absolutely thrilled because if they were that dedicated at learning that one trick, then you know perhaps they can repeat that. I, you're right. I, I'll give you an example. I was pulled into my boss's office, who was the CEO of walmart.com, and I was running marketing. And he said, hey, Carter, do you want my job someday? And I said, well, sure. And he said, you're not going to get it. (laughs) (laughs) And and I said, well, well, why? And he said, because at Walmart, marketing is the merchandising graveyard. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And what drives this company? And he said to me, what drives it? And I said, well, merchandising. He said, you're right, sourcing, assortment planning, pricing, staying in stock. What else drives the company? And I said, 
logistics. He goes, that's right. Moving the product as cheaply as possible from point A to point B. What else drives it? And I said, okay, I need a little help here. And he said, well, store operations, understanding the planogram, understanding how to get people through the store and have them have a good experience in the store. Those are the three things, merchandising, logistics, and store operations. What do you need to do to broaden yourself, to keep getting ahead? Pick your poison. Which of these three areas do you want to go into? And I said, well, I guess merchandising because it's closer to marketing than anything else, so it's an easier step out. He goes, let's, let's get, put your lateral move into merchandising and do that for a few years, and I bet you that's going to give you some more career flexibility down the road. And God bless him for doing that because I went in, I took a lateral move into merchandising, and after doing that, I got his job. Hmm. So understanding the key functions that drive value in your company are critical and yeah. understanding enough about how those functions work. So now I'm jumping ahead and looking at number five. And again, I'm sorry to keep taking the entrepreneurial lens. No, okay. I spent the last 21 years as an entrepreneur. And, and this has to be, again, the picture of the entrepreneurial the entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. Under delivering, and it, it really is tied very closely back to the number two solo flyer, right? The whirling dervish yeah. who is over committing, under delivering, and just never rests. Yeah, the the and you know what's funny? I do. I have an assessment tool on this website. I built I built a website, you know, CarterCast.com, and there's a resource section. You can take the assessment I built on which of these five derailment areas might be dangerous for you. Mm-hmm. And I built the I built the assessment with the Center for Creative Leadership, the CCL, and the highest self-reported self-reported reason for derailment is the whirling dervish. And my yeah, my theory is people just feel like they have no time anymore. You know, we're just inundated with texts and notifications and social media messages and emails, and we just feel like we're running around chasing our tails. So. You know, we've got to avoid working in response mode. Yes. First things first, what's important to get done today? Prioritize the important things, then start hitting all the notifications. I love somebody, I wish I could take credit for this, but somebody told me, you see your, e- your inbox, your email inbox? Carter, that inbox is somebody else's agenda. That inbox <laughs> represents somebody else's agenda. Remember that. Right. I thought, God, that's great advice. I spend my time working the inbox. I'm working other people's agenda. So Absolutely. planning and and, you know, and we stay yeah. there because we feel like we're accomplishing something. We do. If we work hundred emails, but it does nothing. We do. We we work we work from from seventy five down to fifteen, and we feel good about ourselves. But we should pull back and think: Am I moving the ball forward on my key initiatives right now, or am I just cleaning out my email? Am I working in response mode, cleaning out this inbox? Exactly. Exactly. So that's part so, of the whirling dervish's problem is that pri- is that prioritization, mm-hmm. and then another problem that this person faces is um, they often are pleasers that can't say no. They take on a bunch of stuff because they want to be helpful, and they've got to learn elegantly to say no <laughs> and not overcommit. Emphasis on the word elegant. <laughs> and here's an elegant way to do it. Um, the five-minute favor. So 
I was asked, I'll give you an example. I was asked to go to San Francisco and speak to a bunch of Kellogg prospects, people we that were high potential prospects to come to Kellogg. And the, the dean of admissions asked me to do it. And I, I, I was you know, doing this book tour, and I got two other jobs, and I just couldn't take two days to go to San Francisco. So instead of saying, you know, no, I said, you know, I can't get out there right now. But when you're out there, if you see four or five people that are highly entrepreneurial, give me their information, and I'll call them, and I'll try to convince them to come to Kellogg. So I turned a two-day trip into a three-hour, you know, three hours of phone calls. Oh, what a good so, idea. Yeah, sort of like a so. What is the five minute favor or the or a proxy of the five minute favor that you can do instead of making the instead of you know meeting with the person? Maybe you you forward them somebody who's better to meet with, or instead of sitting mm-hmm. down and being interviewed, maybe you send somebody an article that'll help them. So that's, that's a that's a trick for the whirling dervish. So part two is about accelerating your career. And I mean, this obviously follows right in from what we were just talking about. So the, so the next thing is to be focused on the right stuff. And so what, what is the right stuff and how do we set our priorities, you know, as we're looking at moving to the next level of our career? Well, one of the things that was really interesting when I did the research on career is when we make transitions, when we go from, you know, assistant manager to a manager, from a manager to a director, from an individual contributor to a manager. Each of these moves we make is a transformation of identity, and what got us here won't get us there. And yet, I ask bosses, what percent of the time do you ask your boss, what is, what is essential for me to know at this next level that I didn't have to know before? And how would you measure measure success for me, boss, in in two years at this new job? Ten percent of the people raise their hand and say they do that. So when we're making these transitions, the first thing is understanding what success looks like and what success looks like in the new position. And if your boss doesn't isn't able to articulate, these are the key objectives. These are the key performance indicators. This is what you will have done to make me think you really had a, you did a great job in this position. If they can't articulate it, go to somebody else who's been it, who's been there, done that, and ask right. them, what's essential in this position? What should I know? How, what, what's going to trip me up? What do I have to know how to do? Then mm-hmm. go back to your boss and say, hey, boss, here's five objectives. What are these? And here's some KPIs attached to each of these goals. Are these the right things in your mind? So the very first thing is make sure that you and your boss have a meeting of the minds over what right. success looks like. Right. That, that well, is like and, and I know, can critical. See, I can see, Carter, that, uh, again, depending on which one of the five, five archetypes that is your biggest uh, blind spot, that you may not be in a mental place. So if you've gotten promoted and you're Captain Fantastic, what you just described takes humility, right? You're absolutely it, you right. You have to be able to say that, that you don't have all the answers and, and that, you know, the notion that you were promoted because you just had it all, right, is exactly where that person would come from, you know, as I'm looking at this. I, I made this mistake. I, I got promoted from director to VP, and I was at Electronic Arts, and I put together my agenda as a new VP of product marketing. 
And I didn't go ask my key constituents what they thought my objectives should be. And my key constituents were the people that were making the software in the field offices. And so my boss said, you're off to a bad start at my six-month mark. And I said, well, look, I built this great plan. And he goes, you built that plan inside your head. You didn't build it based on asking your constituents what needed to be done. Get out in the field and talk to them. So I, I, I went on this sort of a disaster check tour. <laughs> and I went to Vancouver and I went to Las Vegas. I went to our different markets. And I said, what are the three most important things that product marketing should be doing to help you? And my goodness, I came back with a completely different list of priorities than that which I developed. Mm. And um, the one thing they wanted more than anything was better user testing at the, at the alpha stage of product development to see if their product builds were on the right track. I could do that by creating some user groups and like I could do that in like two months. Right. And so it was hubris, you know, it was sort of an arrogance of thinking that I knew what I should be spending my time doing without asking my constituents. Mm. So the next thing that you outline is really understanding your motives. And, and you know, I think other people can look at our motives or, or think that they understand why we're doing things. Talk to me a little bit about how motives play into this game. Well, you know, what I found is sometimes people don't derail because they have poor interpersonal issues. Maybe they're, they're interpersonally, they're great. And maybe they don't derail because they lack, they have skill gaps. Maybe they are very skilled. Maybe they're derailing because they're in the wrong context. They're entrepreneurs, but they're not in an entrepreneurial job. <laughs> they have no interest in education, but they found themselves you know, in education or whatever. They're not in the right place given their values or their cultural, they're a bad cultural fit for where they are. So in those cases, understanding uh, what motivates you and what, where do you get energy will allow you to put yourself in the right place. Me being at a $50 billion company with my personality made so much less sense than me being at a $50 million company that was scaling like crazy. That mm. second, that environment fit my personality. So when I wrote that whole chapter on motives, I was basically saying, where do you get energy? What right. sort of activities are you doing when you are energetic? How can you find a job and a, and, a, and a cultural environment that fits that, which gives you energy? Right. And quite often, you know, if you've been in that scenario that you were in where you, you did stay with a company for a long time, and I was, I was at American Airlines Sabre for 10 years. And Wow. Again, it wasn't until I left and actually two companies later, two very large companies later that my mother had a stroke and I, I took some time off to spend uh, with she and my father. And, and then I couldn't find a job, right? I had gone from, you know, a six figure income to thinking I'd be able to walk right into something else and, you know, learned what many people learn uh, when, when they're either ousted or choose to leave, right, is that you can't often just walk into the next role. But it wasn't until I worked for myself and, and really until I started my first entrepreneurial venture versus just being a consultant that I learned that that was what I was born to do. And so if you work for big companies forever because you're afraid of the risk of going to an earlier stage company, then you'll never find that that's the place where you do thrive. 
you and I have a very similar experience. I was 11 years at PepsiCo and was trying so hard to fit in. Yes. But it but I didn't fit in. And when I what went to these early stage companies, charm school? I I fit in right away. <laughs> so that was a that was me not understanding what drove me and right. what fit looked like. Exactly. And I wasn't being self-reflective enough uh-huh. to realize that I was driven by I loved building things. I loved the creative process. Mm-hmm. I loved autonomy. I liked fast-moving situations with people that were fun-loving and sort of risk-takers, and that was where I belonged. But, you know, sometimes you can't beat yourself up too much. Sometimes you need to have these experiences to understand what you don't like. Well, you do. You do. And it's funny, the guy who sent me to corporate charm school was actually Canadian. So I think there's a a theme here. (laughs) He pulled me aside, and and I had been put in charge of a a 100-person team to migrate, you know, clients from one platform to another, which, you know, I hate those kinds of projects. And, you know, and he had to pull me out and say, look, here's how people look at you. And here's, here's what they see. And it's like, oh my God, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh Uh, And, and I'll, I'll never forget. Well, the place where he sent me to corporate charm school was actually wonderful. It was an American management association, uh, leadership training program. And it was in Carmel, like at the <laughs> right looking over the sea, right? And I'm in this wonderful group of all senior people. And like everybody said, oh, you are just like sunshine. And I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, nobody at WorldSpan thinks about me in those terms. So if, you know, which one of them is me? And, and what is it about this environment that brings out all those great things? But all the things you described are exactly what motivate me. So let, let's talk about the last one, because this one is a little bit intriguing. And I, I'd like to know what's behind this one, the cold, hard facts of our do-it-yourself world. You can't count on the man. Yeah, this was me saying that in this day and age, we're not getting the development training that that we um, saw in the 80s and 90s in the in this age of of, of the gig economy and and the tra- and it's such a transaction and people stay 18 months and so companies don't develop them. So this was me saying, look, the chances that you're going to get really good development plans and strong feedback. Managers in the Lominger uh, talent firm, talent development firm, they have 67 competencies they track, and and in terms of you know skills, and the lowest rated competency is, believe it or not, developing people. Number 67 mm-hmm. out of 67 doesn't happen. Also, giving direct feedback was really low too. So. Uh, given that situation, you've got to take it on yourself. You've got to ask for the, you've got to look for the development opportunities. You have to ask for the sale. You have to raise your hand. You have to go to the conferences. You have to seek out um, counselors and mentors and people that can help you. And so that last chapter was just this call to action to don't wait for someone to take your career in your hands. They're not going to do it. Right. Right. You have to well, and it. the good news is that they, they've got your book in their hands. And by the time they've gotten to page 211, you know, they they have 
pretty much already gone through this self-assessment and there are so many more resources available today. I mean, podcasts just in general, uh, radio shows, uh, you know, if that's the generation you're from, um, you know, we can sit all day long and listen to things that are going to help build us and grow us. But at the end of the day, you still have to put it into practice, right? That's right. Can't all- So, so where, where do they go from here? What, what is the call to action at the end? Uh, you know, you, you clearly give them some tools, right? The derailment yeah. assessment that you mentioned, and you point them back to the resource archive on your website. But, but where do you encourage folks, once they've actually had yeah. this realization, where do they go next? Well, I think the two most important things when I, at the end of the day is, are you asking for a steady stream of feedback? Are you asking your manager or, you know, if you're in an important meeting or you lead, you lead a meeting or you give a presentation, when you leave, there's a real simple feedback method I love, which is, let's say um, I'm your manager and I say, tell me one thing you think you did well in there. And then I listen. And then I say, let me tell you one thing I think you did well in there. That, that builds confidence. Then I say, tell me one thing you do differently in there. And I listen. And then when that person's done, I say, let me tell you one thing I think you could have done differently. And then you stop. Mm. It's the world's simplest feedback model. You say one thing, it went well. I listen. I tell you one thing I think went well. You say one thing you do differently. Then I tell you one thing I thought you could have done differently. And then you stop. If we, if we ask for feedback on a, on a constant basis after big meetings or presentations or you do a piece of work, then you're not going to get blindsided. You're not going to have a blind spot that cap, that catches you off guard. So my first thing is ask for feedback and do it in this real simple approach so you will know where you stand with your boss or you're just with peers and you say, how did I do in there? Tell me one thing I think you think I did well. Tell me one thing you think I could have done better. Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is you do want some sort of a roadmap. And the roadmap, I just think it's as simple as one-page development plan for yourself. Mm-hmm. That, and I think it can't only focus on the negative. Maybe two of the things are development areas. One could be a skill gap or two, two skill gaps. And the other one could be an interpersonal vulnerability you have that, you know, I'm trying to listen better or I'm trying to reduce my ego drive. So maybe three of those of the five or two of the five are about development needs. And then the other two could be areas where you have a strength that you want to amplify. Mm-hmm. So I'm good in finance. What else could I do to even sharpen that skill better? Right. Um, I'm good at sales. Where else could I practice these skills in a, in a bigger um, in, in a bigger contributing role for my company? So I think develop a, develop a plan for yourself where you identify your strengths and you figure out ways to even do it better and, and get further training and development in those areas. And then you identify two or three weaknesses or skill gaps and you put a plan together to, to reduce the skill gap. Mm-hmm. And get you, if you can, do it with your boss. And if you're an individual contributor, you know, or you're, you're, you're a solo flyer who, who works alone, do it for yourself. Right, right. So I think a, a development plan and then a, and then a constant stream of feedback is the antidote. Right, right. Well, one of my favorite things uh, about your book was talking about increasing your learning agility. 
you know, which is really taking in all of these things and being able to do something with it and to be more flexible. And again, whether you're an entrepreneur, you know, which isn't so much about career flexibility, but, but really about your own development of what you want the story to be right. And, and Mm -hmm. I know for me, uh, probably one of my biggest fears is as an entrepreneur is, you know, bringing in big money into the company and having them say, listen, you know, here's why you're not the person to take this to the next level, right? I want to be that person, right? And so I do need to address my own areas of vulnerability and uh, understanding the new job requirement that would be in place if I moved into a different stage of even my own company, right? So, uh, Carter, I, I tell you what, this has just been really amazing, and I can't can't wait to dig more deeply uh, into the book as well as into some of the resources that you have. I although I I do think I know the outcome of the tests if I would take them, but yeah. I, I, I well think that means you're self aware. That's wonderful, right? If you do, yeah. yeah, you don't want to be surprised by this if you can help it. Right, right. Well, and that that's the whole thing that uh, the people who are going to be attracted to your book, uh, you know, hopefully are those people who have not been assigned reading your book by by someone right. else, right? Yeah. <laughs> you don't, don't want to be this. Yeah, you don't want to be someone. Yeah. I was talking to somebody and they said, who do you think your book's going to appeal to? And I said, oh, uh, you know, somebody who's maybe had a tough review or is in this sort of a career, you know, sort of a morass or sort of in a in a in a in a, in a valley and he said i don't think so i think the the person that's going to be attracted to your book is someone who wants to continue to get ahead and yes. is looking you know looking for you know looking for all the information the ways they can to make sure they stay on the right track so oh, i hope people use it as a proactive measure well and i i think that's exactly who will really get it right if you were assigned reading this book you'd have a chip on your shoulder to begin with right well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate your taking the time. Oh, Carter, thank you so, so much. And again, you know, part of changing the game is changing how we see ourselves and our role in that game. And I just appreciate uh, your work, uh, your influence on all of the companies that you've been with. And uh, just uh, really praise your pouring yourself into the students that are going to be running our companies here in, in another decade or so. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. All right, Carter. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald.